Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Rihanna Patrick. And Rihanna, do you think COVID could possibly ruin this Christmas as well? I can't believe you're sending that out into the universe. I am touching wood right now and I'm going to say a hard no. <laughs> well, yeah, it does feel like the worst kind of deja vu, doesn't it? Uh-huh, it really does. Last Christmas was so weird. It was weird, but my mother-in-law was ready to go and when that border to Queensland opened, she was across it with my father-in-law and the caravan and the dog. Right. I felt like COVID was right on my border and as soon as it opened, it came into our lives and (laughs) and wreaked havoc. So we are in the middle of another wave right now. Queenslanders and South Australians are being urged to mask up again and in New South Wales, um, there's an encouragement to work from home. So we're going to ask how worried should we be Do the boosters still work? How are we still protected? How long will the wave last? Yeah, so we'll put all of those important questions to an infectious disease expert in the second half of the show. But first, today's headlines. It's Friday, the 18th of November. So the Australian academic Sean Turnell has been released from a Myanmar prison and is coming home. He has now uh, landed and is uh, well in Bangkok. Uh, he will travel overnight uh, to Australia to be with his family and this is just a wonderful outcome. Yeah, PM Anthony Albanese speaking there from Thailand. Yeah, so this is the Australian academic who's been locked up for almost two years in Myanmar. He was arrested by the military junta. He was working as an advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi, who's still locked up. Um, But the Australian diplomats have been doing their work to get him released, along with thousands of other prisoners. Yeah, so he spent 650 days in that Myanmar jail. He's travelling from Bangkok to Australia and he'll be escorted by Australian diplomats coming home. And he apparently told the Prime Minister that the Australian Embassy would do these food drops with tote bags that had the Australian emblem and crest on them and that he would hang these on the bars of the jail so he and his guards could see the Australian crest. Mm. And it's kind of what kept his spirits up in the time that he was behind bars. I read that he apologised to Anthony Albanese for not voting. (laughs) And I heard that Anthony Albanese said he wouldn't be fined. (laughs) Yeah, so this guy was a lecturer at my uni, Sean Turnell. So I used to see him around the campus, as I mentioned on the podcast before. So we've been watching this one closely. It's been, you know, pretty hard to watch him locked up so unfairly, but to know that he's coming home is great news. Three men have been sentenced to life in prison for bringing down MH17 in 2014, which killed 298 people. Yeah, so these men have been tried in a Dutch court and it found that the two Russians and one pro-Moscow Ukrainian made a deliberate action to bring down a plane. Even though they actually intended to shoot down a military, not a civilian aircraft, they've still been found guilty and it was confirmed that it was a Russian missile. And what they haven't confirmed is exactly where the men are because they're currently still at large and may never serve their sentences. And just quickly, a third person is feared missing in the New South Wales flood-ridden town of Ugara. It's after a woman uh, said that she saw a young man's body in floodwaters as she was being rescued. Um, He looked to be in his 20s. Andrew Forrest has committed $500 million to help rebuild Ukraine. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. So he's working with BlackRock, the huge investment firm, and a number of other international partners to start rebuilding the country already. Guy Sebastian's former manager, Titus Day, has been sentenced to four years in prison after being found guilty of embezzling more than $600,000 from the pop star's earnings. 
Day maintains his innocence and plans to appeal. And Taylor Swift um, has crashed the North American Ticketmaster website. Her tour is so popular. Some of the tickets are on resale sites now for as much as $40,000. Yeah, and it's always good to have some Tay-Tay news in the briefing. (laughs) And our final story for the morning, such a good one. Nearly as good as the Sean Turnell story. Um, We thought it was gone, but it's back. Neighbours is rebooting for a new series. That's when good neighbours become good friends. So they put out an ad to make us all aware of this, and it features Toadie, Paul, Carl and Susan. Carl, Toadie, have you heard the news? What news? We're coming back on Amazon Freebie. We're coming back, Freebie! We're coming back! With all that great acting. (laughs) So it will be back on Network 10 and then available a week later on Amazon Prime here in Australia, but on different Amazon platforms in the US and the UK. And it looks like they found an international streaming partner. Yeah, so this is amazing news. So the last episode was in July. We interviewed Toadie on the briefing at the time. It was a sad moment. Toadie was wondering what he was going to do next. You were having heaps of feels, Tom. Lots of feelings. That was because they lost their UK broadcasting partner. So now they've, you know, we asked the question at the time, where are the streamers? You know, this is this is where the industry's going. So finally someone stepped up. Yeah, but I have got a question. Even though I know that it's going to be on Channel 10 now and then a week later on a streaming service, I don't know of any streaming service that has a daily mm. stream of a program like a soap opera on it, for instance. Yeah, I can't think of one, at least one that's become really popular or prominent, like a five-day-a-week series on a streaming platform. So will they adapt it? Will it, you know, and I haven't seen this detail in any of the reporting. Um, will they adapt it to become a weekly show or will it? Will the series work in a different way? Yeah, and I guess that's the big question. I mean, I've seen other series that are weekly drops mm. uh, where obviously the episodes are put together and then they're put out. But I, again, I, I'm not sure how that works with a drama. Maybe they'll release all 250 of a year's episode at once. Maybe you can binge watch it. (laughs) All right, Katrina's about to take over as we look into the current COVID wave. Now let's get into our briefing on whether a fourth wave of COVID is going to again ruin our summer and uh, everything we need to know about these new variants that are doing the rounds. In the last week, we've seen an explosion in cases around the country leading to South Australians and Queenslanders being urged to wear masks indoors again and people in New South Wales being asked to consider a return to working from home. Just when we thought we were getting out of the woods, this all feels so draining again. So just how worried do we need to be? When did the protection from our last vaccine or infection run out? And is this going to be as bad as the Omicron wave last summer? To answer all these questions, we are joined by Associate Professor Paul Griffin, who's an infectious diseases doctor and microbiologist at Brisbane's Mater Hospital. Okay, Paul, give it to us straight. Just how worried do we need to be about this fourth wave? 
look, we shouldn't be worried. We need people to be aware that COVID hasn't gone away and this is what it's going to do. It's going to keep causing waves and we need to have a, a, a response that helps to reduce the impact of those waves, but we shouldn't panic or be too alarmed each time. So th- this is the pattern that we're likely to see for a very long time and that we'll have repeated waves of increases of transmission. Hopefully they'll get lower and maybe even less frequent over maybe years, but we're going to have to keep dealing with this virus. And that's what people need to understand because if we get the basics right, the impact of each and every wave will be able to be minimised. I guess, though, you know, we're hearing that there are some new strains. There's one called XBB and BQ1. They've torn through other countries like Singapore and France. What are these strains and how are they different from what we've seen before? So there are a lot of new subvariants that have come out and some have even described it as a variant soup because there's just so many that we're watching at the moment. And the basic things that these are doing is that they're changing just enough so that they evade our immune response, both from past infection and vaccination. They may be a little bit more transmissible. Importantly, they're no more severe in terms of the disease they cause. But what it really highlights is the importance of, again, those basic strategies. And while our protection from vaccination is reduced, it's certainly not reduced to zero and can be largely restored with a recent booster. And that's why we're focusing on boosters and trying to get people to have high uptakes of those boosters to give us the, the best protection possible, even from these new subvariants. Yeah, I guess, you know, when, when Omicron arrived on the scene, we heard that that was more easily transmissible and that potentially could be the pathway out of the pandemic, you know, something that was a virus that was more easy to catch, but people weren't getting as sick with it or dying from it. Is that what we're seeing with these new alphabet soup variants as well? To a degree, but I think the assumption is just going to get milder and fade away to something that's insignificant is is a flawed one, to be honest. I mean, we're going to continue to have to respond to this virus for the foreseeable future. And, you know, these changes that cause these new subvariants with these new properties are are completely random. So, you know, one of these days we could get one that is actually a little bit more severe. It's unlikely, and we haven't seen that uh, since Delta, of course, but that could be the case. So, again, the assumption that's going to fade away by itself and we can just give up and forget about it now, I think, is is one that's going to lead to a greater impact from, from the waves that we're seeing now and probably into the future as well. Looking at the statistics in Australia, um, there has been a small increase in hospitalisations and deaths nationwide over the last week. What do you put that down to? I mean, that looks worrying. The case numbers are likely to have gone up a very significant amount, but the thing is we don't know anymore because so many people aren't getting tested. We don't have to report the rapid engine test, for example. So you know, when we relied so heavily on case numbers to, to gauge how much of the virus was out there, well, that measure's really gone now. So we really then come back to hospitalisations, which there's always an inherent delay. It takes time for people to, to get sick enough to get to hospital. So it, it really means we've probably had lots of this virus being transmitted in our community for, for weeks already. So those hospital Hospitalisation figures are are very significant too because so many people are saying it's just a mild virus now, it only affects those that are elderly, etc. But there's obviously hundreds of people in our hospitals now who are sick enough to need our help. So it it highlights how much virus is out there and why we do need to take steps to both protect the vulnerable who do take up the majority of those hospitalisations, but not exclusively. And I certainly in my practice, we've been really busy seeing COVID patients again for two to three weeks and they haven't all been elderly, comorbid, sick people. There's been some young, previously fit and well people who this virus does put into hospital. So have you seen people getting sicker from these new variants than you saw when they were getting, you know, Omicron and Delta? Look, I would say it's probably very similar, to be honest. And the the, the big thing that is really 
good to highlight is that our ICUs aren't filling up like the hospital beds. So these are people that need to come in, probably need oxygen, other kind of supportive cares and specific antiviral medicines, which make a huge difference. But the intensive cares aren't getting full of these sort of patients. So, so we're not seeing the high severity that we saw early on. And that's probably a combination of many things. The antivirals that I mentioned, this so-called hybrid immunity, which so many people debate, but it's very clear if you're fully vaccinated and had an infection, your immunity is is quite good and will go a very long way, not to stopping you getting infected necessarily, but a really long way to preventing severe disease and keeping you out of the ICU. Let's talk about that immunity. Can you break it down for us? Because I know a lot of people got uh, COVID, you know, back in January at all those New Year's Eve parties, and then other people might have had their booster, but might not have had it, you know, since June or so. Is there a window in time in which you are protected and a window which it fades away? Look, there's so many variables to consider here. It's a bit of a tricky question to answer. I mean, you know, what we know is protection from severe disease lasts quite a long time. And, and that even withstands changes like these new subvariants, for example. So severe di- disease protection is, is great. Protection from infection, well, that falls away a lot more quickly. And so, so that's why you can see things like people getting infected who are vaccinated. But it's important to point out that's not a failing of the vaccine. We know that's one of the limitations of a vaccine for, for this virus and similar viruses as well. It's the same sort of a story, different reasons, but for the flu as well. So protection from infection can be restored to a degree with a booster. So that's why we do like people to be up to date when we see waves. And that's why we're talking about that a lot at the moment. And then in terms of how long it lasts, it really depends on all sorts of factors. So which vaccines you've had, and then everyone's response to vaccines is a little bit different. We know people whose immune systems are turned off for whatever reason, don't respond as well. Elderly probably don't respond the same as younger people. That's why they were prioritised for a booster first and all of those sort of points. But the, the simple message is protection from severe disease is still good, even after a long period of time. And protection from some of those other things like infection or needing to go to hospital can be largely restored with a booster. And that's why it's important when we've got lots of cases around that, that we have people up to date with their boosters. What about the rat tests? Do they pick up these new variants? They do, but we have to remember that rapid engine tests, that performance is based on people being symptomatic as well. So simple message with rapid engine testing, a really important part of our strategy, a really good screening test to do at home. But if you have symptoms and your rat is negative, don't assume it's not COVID. That's when you go and get a PCR to be sure. You know, we want those people who have symptoms and a negative rat to go and get a PCR to check. Paul, it feels like such a weird and confusing time, more so than at any other point in this pandemic. I mean, on the one hand, we've got the Queensland government, the South Australian governments urging people to wear masks indoors. We've got the New South Wales government saying people should work from home. But then we've got that majestic princess cruise ship docking with 800 COVID-19 positive passengers. The other night on the news, I was reading a story about how Santa photos are back and you can go and sit on Santa's lap again in shopping centres. It feels really weird. What should we do? Look, I think it's a really good point. It highlights so many of the major problems I think we've faced during the pandemic. I mean, I think having different rules in different states is just so confusing and it's impossible for people to understand why those rules are in place if they're different across borders. I mean, I think we should have a a unified approach where we just get those really basic points right and just, you know, I think taking masks on and off so quickly as we've done this time has also been terribly confusing. Masks, for example, are so controversial for reasons that still I I don't fully understand. 
you know, they're a really easy, simple, cost-effective way of reducing your risk at least a little bit. So I think we should just encourage masks moving forward. If you're a high-risk person or going to a high-risk event and you can wear a mask without interrupting what you're going to be doing there, well, it's just a good idea to put that on. And same as being up to date with your boosters, you know, we've kind of relaxed a lot of the messaging and we bring it back in a hurry. But that's something that's really important moving forward and working from home. You know, I think if that doesn't interrupt what you do in your job and we're seeing lots of transmission around and you can, you know, safely and effectively work from home, it's a good thing to consider. Now, over the weekend, the head of the AMA um, wrote a really weird tweet, I thought. He tweeted that he did not think that the hospital system was going to cope with this latest COVID wave and that he would bet money on it and he'd actually donate a thousand bucks to charity if the system did cope, which I was just like, mate, that's a little bit unhelpful. You work in a hospital. How will our system cope? Do you reckon it's going to hold up with this fourth wave? It is a huge thing for us to have to deal with. I mean, we manage, we get by, and that's mostly because excellent people work really hard during those times. But there's only so long you can keep asking people to go above and beyond. And I think we're getting to that point now. I think, you know, burnout in in healthcare workers is a very significant issue right now, and we need to do more to support them. Again, not just right now in this current wave, but really moving forward. And, you know, that's where we need, I guess, a commitment across the board to make sure we resource our hospitals appropriately so that they're not uh, not continuing to burn out at quite high rates. All right. So as for your prediction, will COVID ruin summer? What do you reckon? The really good thing that we've seen with some of these new subvariants and the waves they've caused in countries like Singapore in Europe is they have been relatively short. So, you know, I would think it's reasonable to predict that our wave could be at least on the downward trajectory by Christmas. I think if we get things right now, so we do see people stay home if they're unwell and get boosted, etc., then I think there's you know, no reason we couldn't have this at least significantly reduced by that period. But as I say, it's still largely up to us, like so many decision points during the pandemic. That was Associate Professor Paul Griffin, who's an infectious diseases physician. He also works as a microbiologist at Brisbane's Mater Hospital. I guess what I took away from that, I, I choose to see this as a glass half full scenario in that uh, he thinks that it's going to um, be over or the worst of it's going to be over by Christmas. So hopefully all of those New Year's Eve parties are still going to go ahead and they're not going to be a hotbed of infection like they were uh, this year. Um, um, but, you know, I guess, you know, as he said, it is up to us. It's about us, you know, doing those boring things that we know we need to do, socially distancing, maybe wearing masks again, maybe working from home. So, yeah, back to the uh, the old ways, I think, for, for now. All right, thanks for that one, Katrina. Tomorrow in your feed will be the weekend briefing. Jamila, who are you speaking to this week? We have got a really good one for you this weekend. I have chatted with Tom Boyd, who, of course, was the number one AFL draft pick in 2013 and was instrumental to the Western Bulldogs' incredible premiership win in 2016 that ended that team's 62-year drought. Tom signed for a contract as a teenager with Western Bulldogs for $7 million. It broke records at the time. And then, age 23, after a short but truly brilliant career, he decided to retire from footy. And the reason was Tom's mental health. And he has written a beautiful new memoir talking about this. And together we got to unpack 
the pressures of being that successful that young, the spotlight of being one of the up-and-coming stars of the AFL and Tom's struggle with coping behind the scenes with this cycle of insomnia and depression and anxiety. He also has a suggestion to the AFL, which is controversial, but really, really worth thinking about. Tom Boyd, that sounds like a really fascinating story. Really looking forward to that one, Jamila. Thank you so much. And a big thank you to the hardworking briefing team, executive producer Dan Mullins, news producer Eleanor Harrison-Dengate, Brooke Lowther, our socials team, Sarah Boll, Poppy Manzi, and our editor, Matt Cuz-Curry. Listener.